tired and I smell terrible. Awesome. You know, church has been good when you leave and you're tired and you smell awful. That's my, that's my metric. <clears throat> hey, if you want, open up your Bibles to Judges chapter 14. We're going to continue our series through Judges. Uh, the second week that we're going to be talking about Samson. And I uh, want to pick up some stuff there. While you're turning, um, do you guys remember those... Um, we'll start here. Do you guys remember uh, those, those posters, the Magic Eye posters? You know, it looks like... It looks like random nothingness, and then, but there's a 3D image in it. Do you guys remember those? Um, I re- those are hilarious to me because there's two types of people. There's people who instantly see it, and there's people who can never see it, you know? And uh, the, one of the really great things is the conversations that happen, that happen around the Magic Eye posters are uh, especially funny to me um, because there are people who basically instantly see it, and then there's other people who can never hardly see it. And so there, there are certain conversations that happen around that poster, and people end up saying things like, "Well, what, what, what's the you don't you don't see the dolphin? You know, it's right there." And, no, I don't see the dolphin. And then people try to teach the people who can't see how to see the, the three dimensional dolphin in this poster, and so they'll tell them, "Well, just just let your eyes go out of focus. You know, just oh, oh, cross your eyes. No, now just just cross your eyes." Okay, and then finally they tell you, well, just put your nose on the poster. Now open up your eyes. Now just walk back really slow. The point I'm trying to make is that there are, um, that perception's a big deal and that sometimes there's a story inside the story just like sometimes there's a picture inside the picture, right? And and the story that we're going to look at here uh, this morning in Judges chapter 14, is one of those deals. Uh, there's a story. It's a story that we've all probably heard at least certain parts of when we were in Sunday school or maybe over in kids' church here at the vineyard. Uh, but then behind that story is another story. And that's, that's the, really what we want to get to. Um, if you don't have the three-dimensional depth perception, you'll just see the story on this one level. And if you only see the story on that one level, then there's this whole other part that you're missing, and the part you're missing is a really, really important part. It's the part that actually gives shape and purpose to the parts that you can currently see. Does that make sense? It's like being able to look at a magic eye and not see the three-dimensional image, only see the colors and the patterns. If we don't see this story on two on the two levels that it's actually being told in. Uh, likewise, has anyone here ever um, gone to a museum and seen uh, a painting by the painter Monet? Anybody ever seen one of his paintings? Like for years, you know, maybe you, you grew up in, in school and you saw his paintings uh, like in a textbook. And, and then when you actually go to see one for real, like in Chicago, at the Art Institute in Chicago, um, they have a, a big collection of his paintings, all of his water lilies, and they have a bunch of his haystacks, which people don't know about as much, but I think they're more beautiful than his water lilies. Anyway, one of the things you don't realize about a Monet painting is that it's not three inches by three inches. They're actually like 12 feet wide. Some of them are even bigger than that. They're enormous. And there's not a lot of detail. And if you were to walk up really close to a Monet painting, you'd see some color, but the colors kind of blend together. It loses dimension, and you could see the brush strokes, but you wouldn't miss the flower. Does that make sense? And so sometimes we encounter the scripture, and when we only see the narrative at one spot, it's like standing five inches away from a Monet painting to the point that I can see the strokes that the master painter made, but I, I can't see 
the picture that he's painting. And that's the, that's the travesty of it, sometimes the way we read the Scripture. And so this morning, it's really important that we don't just gather the details, the Sunday school details, but there's actually something else that's being told to us. And it'd be a real shame to see the brushstrokes and miss the flower, if that makes sense. So what I want to do this morning is I want to read the whole chapter. We don't normally do that. It's going to take a second, but we're going to read the entire chapter because it's important. Starting in verse 1. I'm going to have a beverage. Wait just a second. Okay, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. And when he returned, he said to his father and mother, I've seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. And his father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. In some of your translations it says, She's right in my eyes. Verse 4, His parents did not know that it was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time they were ruling over Israel. And Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Then he went down and he talked with the woman and he liked her. Sometime later, When he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass, and in it he saw a swarm of bees and some honey. And he scooped out the honey with his hands, and he ate as he went along. And when he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they too ate it. But he did not tell them that he had taken taken the honey from the lion's carcass. Now his father went down to see the woman, and there Samson held a feast, as was customary for the young men. And when the people saw him, They chose 30 men to be his companions. Let me tell you a riddle, Samson said to them. If you can give me the answer within seven days of the feast, I will give you 30 garments and 30 sets of clothes. But if you can't tell me the answer, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. Tell us your riddle, they said. Let's hear it. He replied, Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. And for three days they could not give an answer. And on the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, Coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us, or we will burn you and your father's household to death. Did you invite us here to steal our property? Then Samson's wife threw herself on him, sobbing, You hate me. You don't really love me at all. You've given given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. I haven't explained it to my father or mother, he replied. So why should I explain it to you? And she, cry, she cried the whole seven days of the feast. So on the seventh day, he finally told her because she continued to press him. She in turn explained the riddle to her people. And before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town said to him, What is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? And I love this part. They get the, they get the riddle right only because they've, they've coaxed it out of Samson's wife. What is sweeter than honey? Hmm, I don't know. What's stronger than a lion? Let me tell you what's stronger than a lion. Samson. And they're about to find out. Samson is stronger than a lion. Samson said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would, have not have, you would not have solved my riddle. We're going to do a whole marriage series on this one verse. 
then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon, and he struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the rivel. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home, and Samson's wife was given to one of his companions who had attended him at the feast. Great story, huh? If you had not plowed with my heifer. I love you, babe. <laughs> yeah, so what we're going to do is we're going to just quickly, I'm going to try to go quickly, we're going to quickly review the story on one level, and then we're going to come back and grab it from another level, if that makes sense. Is that all right? So here's what essentially happens. In the first three verses, Samson sees a woman, and she is beautiful, and he loves her instantly. The problem is that she's a Philistine woman, and this is a problem for a couple reasons. It's a problem for a reason. Number one is because in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, the Lord says, don't marry Canaanites. This is what he tells the people of Israel. He says, I've called you out. Don't marry Canaanites. Philistines are Canaanites. That's the first reason it's a problem. But the reason it's a double problem for Samson, if you remember last week, the angel of the Lord comes to Samson's mom and he, and he says a couple things to her. He says, number one, he'll be a Nazarite, which is a, a person who has taken a special vow to the Lord. And a Nazarite means that they to be separated out from. And he's not to eat any grapes, drink any wine, touch any dead thing, or cut his hair. That's basically the essential components of a Nazarite vow. And he's going to be anointed with the Spirit to set his people free from the Philistines. So you can imagine why Samson's parents would have been upset. We've had an angelic encounter, and now Samson, our only son, the one who's supposed to deliver our people from the Philistines, is in love with a Philistine. Anybody here ever have complicated family issues? <laughs> Anyone here ever have an awkward Thanksgiving dinner? When everyone pretends to be happy, pass the potatoes. <laughs> yeah, imagine how awkward that is. You have an angel come and tell you, you're barren, but you're going to have a son. It's by the Lord. He's going to set his people free from the Philistines and he's to be a Nazarite. And you've done everything you can do to raise him up to be this good Nazarite. And when he comes of age, he sees a woman and the first hot woman that he can't live without is a Philistine. <laughs> That's Samson. He's so hungry. Samson's a man of appetite. He's so hungry and he can never say no. It's one of the things that we're going to see in this chapter. Over and over again, Samson is a man with appetites and he can never say no. He can never say no. Samson has an appetite for women. Samson has an appetite for food. Samson has an appetite for riddles and jokes. And Samson has an appetite for blood. And he can never say no. If something stirs his hunger, then he will always feed. Always. That's who Samson is. And how many of you know, just because you have a prophetic word, just because you have a call, and just because you have a destiny, and just because you have an angelic encounter that confirms all three of those, it doesn't mean that you won't have appetites. Sometimes we think that because I've had an encounter with God or because I've been given a profound prophetic word that actually touches my heart, that I'll actually be set free from appetites. One of the things we see from the scripture this morning is that you won't. Just because you're called to set your, set your own people free from the Philistines doesn't mean you, you won't be in love with Philistines. In fact, one of the things that the Lord often does is he will oftentimes place your call right next to temptation for compromise. They, they almost always live right close together. And in fact... 
in, in the room this morning, there's a good number of us, and there was a, there was a bunch of us here in the first service as well. In, in a church the size of, here, of our church here at the Vineyard, uh, there are people all, all over the room and who, who are among our body who have been called, and right next to your calling is temptation to compromise. Or, or, or to look at it another way, the place that you're really, really tempted to compromise is also the place where God is anointing you and giving you a calling to be victorious and fight for your people. Like, like some people... Some people in the room here are, struggle with like a, a addiction, all kinds of addiction, pain pills, pornography, uh, Ben and Jerry's, you, you name it. And, and right next to our most profound, painful addictions is an anointing and a calling from God. Just because you get a word from the Lord, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to have appetites. We need to know this. Sometimes we think, oh, if I just get the word, that's all I need. No, it's going to be more than that. The word is actually highlighting where it's going to be most difficult. In fact, God gives prophetic words and he gives encounters to encourage you through difficulty. The more profound the encounter, the more difficult the calling. Uh, Some of us pray for angelic encounters. Uh, If you get an angelic encounter, it's because it's going to be really difficult. Some of us are like, I'm never praying for an angel again. Never, never. So we can't separate that. Samson is so hungry, and he's called, and he's been given prophecy, and his birth was a supernatural moment, but he's full of appetite. And then in verses 5 through 7, Samson sets out to see this girl that he loves. And when he's in a vineyard, he runs into a lion. And I think this is one of the portions of the story which is really ironic. Samson's a Nazarite, which is to say that he wasn't supposed to drink wine, eat raisins, or even touch a grape, and Samson's in a vineyard. We have to ask, why is Samson in the vineyard? Why is Samson in a vineyard? What's he doing there? Uh, The Bible doesn't say, but if I have any guesses, because I know a little bit about Samson, my guess is that Samson's just walking along and he's just grabbing a grape. Why? Because he can never say no. He can never say no. And right there in this place of potential compromise, right in this place where of, of tempting and testing and probably a place that Samson shouldn't be, a lion jumps out. A giant lion jumps out. And it's, it's there to kill him. It's there to potentially ruin his life, take his life. And in that moment, the Spirit of the Lord comes on Samson. Uh, the Bible says that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. You won't, you won't find that language about anyone else in the whole Bible. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson, and it says that he just ripped it apart like you would a young goat. Now, I, most of us in the room have never ripped a young goat apart. <clears throat> I mean, we've got farmers here, but I don't, we don't have any goat herders here, I don't think. Um, but, but Samson rips this line apart like, like you would a young goat, or, or maybe back to Thanksgiving. Anybody ever rip the drumstick off of the turkey at Thanksgiving? Just, just a little, it's just a little pop. Just, you know, just dislocate that thing. Um, sometimes, sometimes we go to Peru. We've planted several vineyard churches down in Peru, and uh, Peruvians are famous for one thing in particular. They make, they make the best chicken in the entire world. And one, I've come to realize that one of the reasons that the chicken is so good in Peru is because it's not at Kroger, and, like, when you eat it, it was, like, alive like an hour ago. And I can't tell you how many times I've sat in a living room in Peru and you hear this. And you're like, what was that? Oh, that's my wife. She just killed the chicken, you know. It was like that. That's the, that was Samson with the lion. It was just a little, he just rips this lion right apart. How does he do it? He does it because the Spirit of the Lord comes on him. The Spirit of the Lord comes on him. 
And one of the things I want you to notice about verses 5 through 7, when he's in the vineyard and he's about to be attacked by a lion and he rips it apart by the work of the Spirit, I want you to notice that no one's around. It's sort of a strange passage. If you read it closely, it sounds like his mother and father are there with him, but somehow he gets separated because the Bible says that he rips this lion apart and he doesn't tell his mom and his dad what he had done, right? So he's alone. Uh, One of the points that you need to see here is that the work of the Spirit, a powerful manifestation of the Spirit, uh, that, um, that, over, that overwhelming move of God, uh, partnering with the Lord, it will always start alone and in the secret. Just like temptation and just like, uh, just like sin and just like the things that will ruin your life always start in secret, the work of God always starts in secret. Like when God gives you a prophetic word and you begin to believe it and then you begin to envision and imagine along with the Holy Spirit about what that might be, anytime we do that, we always... We always envision and imagine way out here and by the way you should if you can't see it you'll never be it okay you have to see it and so we imagine maybe if you're called to preach you imagine preaching in front of thousands of people and by the way you should but you'll never start preaching in front of thousands of people you're going to start with the work of the spirit alone in your bedroom when no one sees it dealing with wild animals maybe not wild animals in your room the ones that run around in the spirit. When I was a kid, we had a squirrel that got in our house. This has nothing to do with the messages. We had a squirrel that got in our house. I'm sitting downstairs with my sister once, and this squirrel comes jumping down the stairs and looks right at me. I'm like, Amanda, look at that squirrel. And he did his little, you know, that thing, and runs back upstairs. And the next thing I know, he was dead in the toilet. That story has no spiritual significance. I just, I just remembered it. And then verses 8 and 9 on his way back, he notices that the very line he killed has now become a honeycomb. How many of you have ever seen a honeycomb inside of a dead animal? Like those deer, the puffed up ones on the side of the road? <laughs> You should test it out on the way home. Like if you see one of those, you know, they're swollen. They're all in the leg. The back leg is like, like that. <laughs> Just go and see. I've never seen it either. I, I've, I've, I'm not really, I've shot several animals, but I've never seen a carcass house a honeycomb. One of the things it tells me is that it's actually a work of the spirit here. Something, whatever's going on here is a work of the spirit. And I actually think it was a prophetic symbol prophetic sign for Samson, but he mishandled it. What the Lord was trying to communicate to Samson is, is um, there's, I'm blessing your battles. I'm, there's a sweetness that's going to, there's going to remain after the battles. It's not just going to be blood and guts, but there's going to be sweetness there. And Samson took hold of it in a way that he wasn't supposed to, because he was a Nazarite, never supposed to touch a dead animal, never supposed to touch a dead body, no unclean food. Samson, he's just so hungry, he can't help it. He just reaches in there and he starts to eat it. And then he goes back to his mother and father and he gives him some, gives them some as well. And when he does that, it's sort of an echo of of Genesis when Eve takes that fruit that she wasn't supposed to and she takes a bite of it and she goes and gives it to Adam. It's sort of an echo there. But Samson, he's so hungry, he can never say no. He's so weak. He's so weak. And then verses 10 through 14, the wedding comes. And Samson makes a wager based upon a riddle. 
He says, out of the eater, something to eat, and out of the strong, something sweet. And Samson says, basically, uh, we're going to party for seven days, and if you guys can figure out my riddle in the next seven days, I'll give you 30 changes of wedding clothes, but if you can't, you're going to owe me 30 changes of wedding clothes. And the thing I want you to notice there is, rather than making war, Samson makes a game, and he's making friends. He's, why? Because he's so hungry, he can't, he can't not can't not and then the guests manipulate his wife and they tell her if you don't tell us the answer to the riddle we're going to kill you and your family and by the way we're going to do it in a particular manner we're going to burn you and at the very last minute samson tells her this is the interesting part to me he says no he says no he says no he says no and then right on the last day he tells her why because he can never really say no He's so weak. Samson's terrible with secrets. You ever seen that? Um, one of my favorite Saturday Night Live bits. Um, Kristen Wiig. Have you seen? <laughs> have you seen that bit? I think there's only two of them. Well, I have a secret. Have you seen her? Okay, today it's your homework. Uh, go on you. Go on the YouTube's, and watch Kristen Wiig. I have a secret. She flips out. <laughs> it's 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 amazing. That's Samson. He can he can never keep a secret. He can never keep a secret. So he tells her and he ends up being betrayed and he ends up being betrayed not just by his own wife, but he actually ends up being betrayed by his his appetite. It's his own appetite. He can't say no. He always says yes. If there's something there to grab hold of, then he'll grab a hold of it. Samson is so strong, but he's so weak. The truth is, he may be one of the frailest souls in the whole Bible. The man who's known for his strength is probably one of the weakest, most frail souls in the whole Bible. And then he ends up losing the wager because he tells his wife his secret. And the man who's called to punish the enemy is now being mocked and ridiculed by the enemy. But then he goes out, and in verse 19 it says, The Spirit rushes upon him again. Same, same words, same phrase that was used when he ripped that lion apart like a young goat. The spirit rushes upon him and he goes to another Philistine town and he strikes down 30 men and he grabs their clothes and he brings them back to the men he lost the wager to. And here's what I want you to see. So Samson was called to punish the enemy, but because of his appetites, he ends up losing the wager and being punished by the enemy. But then the strength of the Lord comes upon him and he goes to another town and he, and he strikes men down and he ends up taking those clothes back to the men he lost the wager to. And how many of you know that when he handed those clothes over, they would have been bloody clothes? Somebody would have asked, where's the blood from these clothes come from? And he would have said, oh, from your brothers. From your brothers? That's where they came from. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and it's an act of strength. And so here in the end is another twist. The Riddler gets riddled, but then he is vindicated The garments didn't come from Samson, but they came from the brothers. And so there's this odd strain of justice that's coming through here. But if you look too close, you might miss the point. Because we haven't even talked about the point of any of this yet this morning. The point is in verse 4. It's the the easiest verse to overlook in, in in this whole chapter. Can we put it back up, please? Samson's about to go get a wife that his parents don't want him to. Look at verse 4. 
His parents did not know that this was from the Lord. What's from the Lord? All of this. Everything that's going to happen in chapter 14 is from the Lord. Who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. So we've just talked about the story at one level, but there's this other level, this invisible from the side, slightly behind. You can miss it if you're not looking. And it's the the point of the, the Lord was the one who was pulling some strings here. This story has multiple levels. And this is one of the things I want us to see. This is really important. This story has multiple levels. On one level, it's a story about a weak man who is at times anointed. On one level, it's a story about a man consumed with his own appetites. He's so hungry, and he can never say no. It's about a man who can never say no. A clever man who is, in reality, not all that clever. On one, lo- on one level, it's a story about a man who is, who is, whose per- personal trajectory is always down. Five times in chapter 14, the word down is used. Always down. On one level, it's a story about a called-out man, but he's full of compromise. On one level, it's a story about a really sad, kind of a bummer guy who had so much potential and squandered it. But on another level, this is a story about God. That's what verse 4 is telling us. This is, this is a story about Samson, but this story is really, really, really about God. And the reason I bring it up is because it's the way the Lord works. Samson is weak. Samson is breaking the law. Samson is compromising his call and his mission, and he's actually walking away from it. Verses 1 through 3, he's actually walking away from his call, and he's making friendships with people that God has anointed him to fight. And in all of that, God is able to still accomplish his will. This is one of the greatness things. The thing I really want to get across to you this morning is, is about the greatness of God. How great is God? God is so great that he can take really weak people who can never say yes and always, always, always compromise, always give it away, always so hungry, they live out of their appetites. They, they, never, walk, they never walk close with the Lord. Everything the Lord asks them to do, they, they somehow walk around it. They, they give in. Every chance there's an opportunity to take a stand, they give in. And God is somehow able to take those kinds of people and accomplish his purpose in them. It's a story about the greatness of God. God is so great that when weak men and women full of appetites run amok, even when they run away from Him, He can still work all things to good, every single thing. Most of us in the room understand that sin is missing the mark, right? We've all heard that. If you've been to church more than twice, you've probably heard a pastor scream at you, sin is missing the mark. It's in you to hell. Um, We all understand that sin is missing the mark. We all understand that sin can ruin your life. And one of the things I don't want to communicate this morning is I don't want to communicate that sin is not that big of a deal, and I don't want to communicate that we should be overly casual about sin. But the other thing I really want to get to this morning is is this, that, that at times we have made sin bigger than God. The church is so guilty of this. We, we make sin bigger than God. We make failure bigger than the, the work of the Spirit. And one of the things that we see in Samson is that weakness is not bigger than God. Sin is not bigger than God. Failure is not bigger than God. Compromise is not bigger than God. Even if you sin, you fail, and you compromise, God can still use you to accomplish His purpose that He anointed you for because He's great. 
He's the one person in the universe who can use really weak, fallible, messed up, running away people and bring them back in and accomplish his purpose, whether they know it or whether they don't. Samson's weakness are his appetites, his compromise. And here's what I want to tell you. I don't believe that it was God's will. It says in verse 4 that God was behind this. I don't believe that it was God's will that Samson marry a Philistine. That would be, I think that would be a wrong way to interpret this passion passage. I don't believe that Samson, that God intended Samson to marry a Philistine. I don't believe that God intended Samson to put his hand in the carcass of a lion and, and, and break his Nazarite vow. I don't believe that it was, it was the Lord's will that, that Samson uh, tried to become friends with Philistines rather than, than fight them. But even though Samson was about to take a Philistine wife, and even though Samson put his hand into a lion that he should not have touched, and even though Samson made riddles and jokes where he should have made war, the Lord in the end was able to accomplish his purpose. God is always greater. God is always greater. See, God's the ultimate opportunist. He makes a way where others see nothing but roadblocks. You can run away from the Lord, and He will still use you. You can be a Jonah, and He will send you right back. You can be a Jonah, and, he will, and you won't hit the bottom of the ocean. You'll get swallowed by a well. The thing I love about this is, is that God ends up using Samson's own weakness, his propensity to say yes to his appetites, to bring about the confrontation that Samson was anointed for. See it in the story? God says from Samson's birth, you're anointed to fight the Philistines and to begin to set your people free. Samson grows up and says, I just love Philistines, especially the girls. I have a passion for the women. And by the end of the story... God has used Samson's own appetites and brought him into confrontation. Who could do that but the Lord? God is so great. He can take weak people and lead them into the fight. There's probably a few weak people in the room this morning. One or two. There's probably a weak person here. And the thing I want to tell you this morning is that God is greater than your weakness. God is greater than your weakness. The primary narrative of our life is not sin and failure. The primary narrative of, of life is not sin and failure. It is the greatness of God. In fact, one of the things that we oftentimes miss in the Scripture is that the opening, the opening chapters of Genesis are that God creates the world and then He declares that it is good. He calls humanity good. He calls creation good. Most of us have been taught in church that humanity is bad. We've become overly Calvinized. We've tiptoed through the tulips, and we believe uh, we've, we have overly embraced the sin narrative that people are just destructive and terrible and awful when the first thing that God says about people is that they're good. Not only that, but we have overinflated the power of sin, and we have devalued the glory and the greatness of God and His ability to work and accomplish His, His good and right purpose even in circumstances that are less than great. He has a penchant for tarring rotten circumstances and soiled hearts into accomplishing his good purpose. Um, anybody in here remember Phil Jackson? Coach Phil Jackson? Yeah. Coached the Bulls and he coached the L.A. Lakers. Um, a lot of people think that Phil Jackson is the best coach of all time. A lot of people think that Phil Jackson is probably the best 
maybe the best coach, not just basketball coach, any coach, maybe the best coach of, of all time. And um, he won six championships with the Bulls, and then he goes over to L.A., and then he wins a bunch more. It's crazy. But how many of you understand that Phil Jackson wasn't just a great coach, but that he happened, happened to have two of the best players maybe of all time? He certainly had the best player of all time. He had Michael Jordan at the Bulls. And then when he takes his next job, he ends up with Kobe Bryant, right? But he's the greatest coach of all time. See, the reason I bring it up is because Phil Jackson was a great coach, but he had the best talent. God does amazing things with nobodies. There's, there's no one like God. He, he, does, he does great things with nobodies. Remember at the beginning of the book of, of Judges, he calls out to Gideon, who's so afraid he's down in a wine press and he's threshing wheat. And the Lord shows up and he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And he takes little afraid Gideon and he takes him through a process of instilling Holy Spirit courage into him to the point that Gideon goes and faces an army of 100,000, 135,000 with just an army of 300 men. Gideon and 300 deliver Israel from an army of 135,000. That's what the Lord does. Phil Jackson could never do that. The Lord takes 16-year-old, maybe 15-year-old Mary. She's a nobody, and she's from nobody's. She's from, she's from nowhere. She's from, like, Campbellsville. Like, people don't even know where she's from. And the Lord says, I'm going to give you a baby. And by the way, you're, you're going to have a baby. You're never going to even have sex. You're just going to have a baby. And so there's 15-year-old Mary from Nowheresville, a complete and utter nobody, and she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And eventually, somewhere wrong, maybe three or four months into this whole thing, she has to go tell her mom and dad, hey, mom and dad, I'm pregnant. Good news, I didn't have sex. It's all good. <laughs> it's one of the things I love about that story is that her story doesn't help her. It actually doesn't, it doesn't help. Mom, no, really, really I, I didn't. I'm, I'm telling you, it's not Joseph. It wasn't anyone. It's the Lord. That makes it even worse. To tell the story actually makes it worse. The Lord just uses, he uses nobodies. I'm also reminded of Joseph, number 11 out of 12 brothers. All of his other brothers are jealous, and they, they beat him. They strip him naked, and they kick him in a hole. And then they sell him to some traders, and he ends up in Egypt. And years later, his brothers are back because of a famine, and, and Joseph looks at his brothers and says, What you meant for evil, God has meant for good. Who, who else could have done that? but the Lord. He's so great. He's so great. And by the way, I don't believe that it was ever God's will that Joseph be beaten and shamed and thrown into a hole and sold. I don't believe any of that was his will, but God is able to take beaten, shamed, thrown into a hole, sold to slave traders, Joseph, and work it out for good, not just for Joseph, but for the very people who beat him, shamed him, threw him to a hole and sold him. Who else could do that but the Lord? One of the things that the Bible is trying to communicate to us is that your failures are not the biggest thing in the world. There is someone who far exceeds failure, and his name is the Lord. So it wasn't so much that Samson's strong. The truth is Samson's probably the weakest guy in the whole Bible. It's just that the Spirit comes on him. And so even now, the Spirit is resting on people who are really weak. 
if you feel really, really weak, if, and if you know you're really weak, the good news is this morning is you're not disqualified. God could do something incredible with you. Even in the midst of your weakness. Some of us believe that we have to get rid of our drug addiction before we can be useful to God. You actually don't. It isn't God's will that you be a pill popper. But if you are a pill popper and you love Jesus, he can still accomplish his will through you. Some of us may have a sexual addiction that we just can't get rid of. The computer just keeps drawing us back in. We want to get rid of it. We just don't know what to do. And we're so addicted to pornography. It's just awful. And there may be a person or two that is in that spot this room, this morning. In fact, I guarantee you there are. You might be thinking, I'm never going to be useful to God. He's, I've forfeited my call. That's the voice of the devil. Even in the midst of your, your crazy weakness. Maybe you looked at pornography last night. Number one, the Lord wants to set you free. Number two, he can. Number three, he will. And number four, even in the midst of your crazy weakness, the pornography you looked at last night, you're still useful and beloved by God. Amen. Even right now. Why? Because, because who God is is bigger than who you're not. This is a story about the greatness of God. And so even now, he's anointing people. He's anointing weak, really weak people. And God has this habit of giving his best gifts to the worst people. When I give somebody a gift, human nature is to want to make sure that that gift gets into the right hands. Like if I'm going to give something good, then I want to make sure that it's given to somebody who knows how to use it. And God is just not like that. God will give an incredible gift to someone who's just rotten. Sometimes he gives incredible gifts to people who are rotten and never change. And even though they never change, he powerfully uses their life. There's a prophetic guy who radically shaped the whole vineyard movement. And not just the vineyard movement, but he shaped the church. And basically the understanding of the church um, for the last 30 or 40 years, his name is Paul Cain. Anybody ever heard of Paul Cain? He's a prophet. Anyway, I know some friends who are really... Really, who've been really close to Paul. And Paul's now, he's really old, and he has an insane ministry from the Lord. And his entire life, Paul has been a practicing homosexual. Now, I don't believe that it was God's, I don't believe that it was God's will or intention that, that Paul be a practicing homosexual. I don't believe that was God's plan for his life. And even in the midst of his weakness, God anointed him and brought radical, powerful change and blessing to his church. Do you have theology for that? God takes really weak people, really weak people, really weak people. And he's so great that he can overcome weakness to do something profound. Even now, God is rewriting the narrative. When you're born, you're, you're born into a world that wants to write your book. You got a book and the world just wants to write your book. And if you're not if you're not careful, the world will write the book for you. And that's what happened to Samson. So when Samson wanted to marry the Philistine, it wasn't just that Samson wanted to marry the Philistine. It was that, it was, it was that all of Israel had already married Philistines. It, he, he was the stand-in for the entire place that he lived in. And he was the stand-in because, because Canaanite culture 
and, and Israel compromise had been written into his book. But God comes and rewrites it, even though Samson's completely unaware. By the end of this thing, Samson is going to win another great victory. God has this way of rewriting our story. And so even now, he's giving really great gifts to rotten people. He's doing amazing things to profoundly weak people. He's rewriting the narrative. Even for those of us in the room who have been completely written by culture, we just, we're, just, we're just who culture says that you should be. Isn't the Lord beautiful? Who else could do it? Who else could do it? See, in the gospel of the kingdom, your weakness is not the final answer. In the gospel of the kingdom, your failures won't be remembered. In the kingdom of heaven, your failures will not be remembered. And in the kingdom of heaven, your sin is not the last word. And in the kingdom of heaven, your hunger isn't the part that's going to be amplified through eternity. It'll be the greatness of God that's amplified through eternity. If I can say it this way, there's been a lunar eclipse in the Son of God. That dark stone has been covered up by the Son of God. God is so great that He can accomplish His purpose even if people do not cooperate with Him, even if people run away from Him. Even if you're a total Jonah, or you're just trying to run away from the Lord on something, He will, he will capture you. You might spend three days in the belly of a fish, but He will capture you. And you'll be back out on the beach because he's great. A couple bits of action. If you've got a pen or a paper, you should write this down. If you've got an iPhone, you should take some notes. If you've got an Android, I'm sorry. <laughs> Amen. I don't know. A couple bits of action. A couple things to consider, to think about, to meditate on, to roll with chew on before you go to sleep. Number one, calling often sits right next door to temptation for compromise. Oftentimes, they're side by side. Have you seen it? Have you experienced it in your life? Have you located it? It's good to be aware. Review your life. Review where you're most tempted to compromise. Some of us in here don't have any, you're not tempted at all to take 14 Percocets and a really long nap. That, does, that just doesn't do it for you. But, but maybe, maybe you're more tempted to go grab all your credit cards and go to Louisville and just go. And that works for a while. And then you come home and you got these bills and you're overwhelmed. And then you fight with your husband and you just go crazy. Right? Because the place where you're experiencing the temptation to compromise is the very place that God has actually given you an anointing and given you the spirit to overcome. Don't give up. Don't give in. And then number two, can you see the story of God in your life? Can you see the story of God in your life? Do you even know your own life? A lot of times we hardly know our own lives. And then there's others of us in the room who have some understanding of our own life, but we... 
but we don't we only have that one level it's just like it's like the surface reading of judges 14 it's just you know samson did this and then samson did that and samson did this and but we we leave verse 4 out of our life verse 4 that this was the lord can you see can you see the activity of god in your life even when you're really weak if you'll meditate, if you'll, if you'll think, if you'll consider, if you'll invite the Holy Spirit to show you, one of the things he'll do is he'll show you the dual narrative of your life, this, this thing, this, this life where you're making choices. And by the way, uh, your choices are real. Free will is a real thing. Your choices are real. We're free agents. The choices you make matter. They change things. But even, even though your choices matter and are real and they're living down here, above it is this other narrative, and it's the activity of God. Can you see the activity of God in your life? Even when you are really weak, do you see how God has turned things to good for you? If you miss that, then you'll miss a good portion of the beauty of God. And if you miss the beauty of God, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll fail to be a complete worshiper. And if you fail to be a complete worshiper, you'll forfeit the, exi- the reason for your existence. Like, seeing the beauty of God always, always invigorates a person to worship. Uh, not only that, but it says in First John... Uh, when we see him, we'll be like him. It's one of the main ways that we become transformed. It's to be able to see God. Can you see God in your life? Like even in the darkest, even in the darkest moment, like go back to that dark spot. Go back to the dark moments where you felt abandoned or you were rejected. Go back to the dark spots where you weren't just abandoned or rejected, but you did the abandoning and you did the rejecting and you, you, you hurt people. Look for God. He's there. He was, he was turning the waters toward you any way he could. Look for Him. You need to see the beauty and the brilliance of God because if you see Him, you'll be like Him. It's a place of transformation. Amen? Amen. Amen. Hey, if I could have the, um, the ministry team come up. We've got some people who want to pray for you guys this morning.